Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Now this week, as you know, the opposition party members of the Parliamentary Standing Committee on Procedure and House Affairs, PROC, voted to support a non-binding motion calling for this public inquiry into China's interference in the Canadian federal elections of 2019 and 2021. Liberal MPs on the committee voted against, and the Prime Minister, you know the rest of that particular story. Michael Cooper is a member of the Conservative Party of Canada for St. Albert Edmonton, and he's a member of the PROC committee, and Mr. Cooper joins us on The Roy Green Show. Michael, thank you very much uh, for joining us. You've reacted on Twitter to my interview with Mr. Singh yesterday. What disturbed you about uh, how Mr. Singh dealt with my questions? Well, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP have been helping the liberals to cover up getting to the truth about Beijing's interference in the 2019 and 2021 elections. Not once, but on three times at the Procedure and House Affairs Committee, the NDP voted with the liberals to shield the PMO, including... Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, who is a, is a critical witness who needs to come before the committee because it, the heart of this scandal is what the Prime Minister knew, when he knew it, and what he did or failed to do. And it's why Telford needs to uh, appear before the committee. And really, the NTP has a choice. Uh, they can uh, work with us to get to the bottom of interference, this attack on our democracy by the Beijing regime, or they can continue to do the bidding of the PMO. And so far, the choice they've made is to do the bidding of this prime minister. Do you have an idea of, uh, or a suspicion of what the prime minister might have known uh, prior to the elections, both in 19 and 21, or what he may know now, which may be uh, convincing him not to side with a public uh, inquiry? Prime minister has been anything but transparent. Beijing's interference is not speculative. It's based upon CSIS documents, including the limited documents that have been released to this camp, uh, to our committee that speaks of uh, what CSIS described as a subtle but effective interference campaign in the 2019 election. And then, of course, based on the report of Global News and the Globe and Mail, upon reviewing CSIS documents, there was a sophisticated campaign of interference in the 2021 election. If Prime Minister has nothing to hide, then he should be forthcoming. And one of the most serious allegations involves a, a, a meeting that CSIS had with senior PMO aides uh, leading up to the 2019 election, during the 2019 election, warning them about a liberal candidate, now sitting liberal MP, uh, who had been assisted by Beijing's Toronto consulate in his nomination campaign. Instead of dealing with that, instead of taking that warning seriously, the Liberals turned a blind eye. And what's worse is it appears, based on the Global News report, that 
that information was then leaked to that liberal candidate, now sitting MP, classified information. So that is not uh, the actions and conduct of a prime minister and a government that takes Beijing's interference seriously. In fact, it appears that they were quite ready to go along with it and turn a blind eye to it so long as it served their electoral interests. Yeah, we actually have uh, Richard Fadden, the former director of CSIS, and Gerald Butts, who was the former principal secretary, to Mr. Trudeau also calling for a public inquiry. So that's, I would think that that would be, should be fairly persuasive for the Prime Minister of Canada. Does your committee have any further options, any, any uh, options that you might exercise? Well, we need to continue to do the work of getting to the bottom of Beijing's interference. A public inquiry is something that we support. It should happen, and it should happen with the appointment of the commissioner in which all parties support, so that Justin Trudeau doesn't get to handpick who that commissioner is, given the fact that he's implicated in this interference by Beijing. Uh, but while a public inquiry is necessary, it will take a long time. It could take years. What we need is answers, and we need answers now, and PMO officials cannot run and hide. And that's why uh, next week I will be bringing forward a motion uh, to call on Katie Telford, Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, to appear before our committee. It will be very interesting to see whether the NDP for the fourth time shield the PMO and block Telford's testimony, or whether they'll actually uh, do what Jagmeet uh, saying claims to, to be, uh, and that is serious about getting to the bottom of Beijing's interference. What, what's your sense about, uh, I know you started to talk about that at the beginning of the interview, but what's your sense about Mr. Singh and his involvement in this particular situation? It's not necessarily terribly fair of me to, to do this. I'm not trying to set him up with a question to you, but uh, you're a member of the committee. You sit there with NDP members who are also calling for a public inquiry. So um, please answer the question. Go ahead. Well, it's curious as to why Jagmeet Singh and the NDP have blocked efforts to get key witnesses, including Katie Telford, who we need to hear from, mm. uh, in the face of the revelations that senior PMO staff were warned by CSIS about Beijing's assistance of a liberal candidate, now sitting MP, and did nothing about it. So the ball is in the NDP's court, and I I have to say, the only observation I would make is that this is a product of the coalition at work. Uh, you're talking about uh, Member of Parliament Han, right, in, in Toronto? I, I'm referring to the member for, for in, that's correct. So let me just play what Mr. Trudeau had to say. I want to make everyone understand fully that Han Dong uh, is an outstanding member of our team and suggestions that uh, he is uh, somehow not loyal to Canada, um, should not be entertained. So I do understand the Prime Minister stands up to defend his, his, his member of caucus, but uh, you, you definitely want to see action on this particular situation and questions answered. Is it going and to happen? The, the issue. Go ahead, Michael. I was going to say, Roy, the real issue is Justin Trudeau. What did he know? What did he do about it or not do about it? That's what we need answers about. Mm-hmm.
Final question, how do you I mean, how do you suppose this situation continues? How does it end? Is it at least in the immediate term going to be accusations and counter accusations? Because people get tired of that. And I but I do believe that Canadians at this point are so invested in this issue, they're not going to drift away from it. Well, this is serious. We're talking about a sophisticated campaign of interference in two elections by Beijing. It must be emphasized that it did not affect the overall outcome of the election, but it could have impacted the outcome in several ridings. And the fact that even if it impacted the result in one riding should alarm Canadians. And this should not be a partisan issue. Uh, All parliamentarians should have an invested interest in getting to the bottom of this so that we can protect our democracy. But what we know is that uh, up until now, the prime minister has at the very least, turned a blind eye, which is unacceptable. And even worse, his PMO, and he may have been uh, warned and uh, about a liberal candidate and, and did nothing. And, uh, and that's a problem. We're going to talk now with uh, Kenny Chu. He was a conservative member of parliament for the B.C. riding of Steveston, Richmond East. And I spoke with Mr. Chu about a year ago about this particular case. This is before it blew into this national issue that's not going to go away. It's not going away whether Mr. Trudeau wants it to or not. It will not. But I spoke to Mr. Chu about this and about how China interfered in his election campaign, and it did cost him his seat. He was an elected member of the, of the federal parliament and then defeated in 2021. Kenny, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Hi, Roy. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Yeah, good to talk to you again. Um, there's no doubt in your mind at all. Let's start with this. There's no doubt in your mind that China actively worked to see you defeated as the member of parliament for your writing in British Columbia leading up to and during the 2021 federal election, no doubt. Yeah, I mean, at first, uh, the, the observation that I have in the, in the report from the team um, you know, both uh, confirm that, uh, yes, I've been a target, um, you know, on this, on, a thorn on, on their side and that they, they wanted to get rid of me. And they've been using, they have used uh, quite a bit of resource to, to do that. Um, but it's all, you know, research that we, we've conducted. But now with uh, the Globe and Mail report, for example, it's been confirmed that the, the national security um, uh, experts and professionals in our federal government have also have uh, information and evidence that that confirm uh, what we have always been saying. Now, Roy, it's important to to let Canadian know that um, you know it is it is not that I I'm I'm claiming the Chinese uh, foreign interference is the sole and entire uh, factor that caused the loss of my uh, election. There there is a, a host of factors that affected. I'm just saying we have found information and we have found um, uh, evidence now by CSIS that uh, such an activity is happening in multiple riding, not just in Steve yeah. and Richmond East. Now, yeah. Kenny Chu running or not, Kenny Chu winning or not, it, to a certain extent, it's not, it's not important. What is important is uh, what are we as a country doing about this? What have we done to prevent this from happening? Uh, and these are the questions that uh, that we need to have more uh, of a discussion as as a country. 
Absolutely. So let's you and I talk about this. And by the way, uh, let's not forget Sam Cooper from Global News, our investigative journalist who's done amazing work on this particular case, on this file, as he does on so many. Uh, the, the, the problem for China, for Beijing, the problem that you represented had a lot to do with private members' legislation that you introduced, and it had to do with lobbyists, as I understand it, and anyone acting for a foreign agency, um, foreign country, who lobbied in Canada, your legislation argued they should be compelled to register as a lobbyist. Do I have that correctly? And is that the thorn that really irritated Beijing? It's one of the three deadly political sins that I've uh, been, been calling them. Uh, yes, you have, I would give you 90% mark. Uh, Roy, it, it's actually quite accurate. The whole point is not to uh, jeopardize Canadians' much enjoyed political freedom in, in doing whatever they want. Uh, but and yet at the same time, we want to achieve uh, a level of transparency, uh, much like the what the Australian uh, registry is proposing. We're saying, you know, continue to do whatever you want to do, continue to act on behalf of a foreign government in lobbying our lawmakers. Um, but, you know, do that instead of today, it's under the table in the shadow, do it under the sun, which is the best uh, disinfectant, we all know that. Um, and let our Canadian society, let our, uh, you know, media cover what, what it is. Maybe, maybe it's nothing important, maybe we don't care, but maybe we do. Uh, and for that, that's one of the most, um, you know, deadly violation that I have violated the uh, the uh, Chinese uh, Communist Party, their work here in British Columbia. And for me to participate in um, a vote that was held in um, the Parliament of Canada, indicating that what's happening to Uyghur Muslim in Xinjiang province in China fulfills the definition of uh, genocide uh, as defined by the UN. That vote was participated by um, myself and also my colleagues uh, on the conservative side, and it was passed. That apparently is the second violation uh, to them. Mm -hmm. And the last and, and perhaps the, the most mundane one is um, in uh, 2019, uh, I, I saw what happened to uh, the city where 300,000 Canadian passport holders are residing. It's called Hong Kong. Yes, The indeed. kind of problems that they have been having. Yeah. And I thought, hey, a political uh, solution, it's what should provide the stability that uh, this city yeah. used to enjoy. Kenny, so I participated in an election observation mission there. Okay, let me ask you, what happened when you introduced that private member's bill? And it makes absolute sense to me that anybody acting for a foreign agency, a foreign country, should have to, and lobbying this country on behalf of a foreign agency, should be compelled to register as a lobbyist. That's just common sense. But when you introduce that, what was the response of the Liberal Party? What was the response of the New Democrats? What was the response of the Bloc Québécois? Let's start with the Liberals. Were they largely in favor of that particular piece of private members' legislation? It was other than other than my colleagues on the conservative side, um, everybody was indifferent. Indifferent. Liberals, NDP, they don't care. There is no like on the House of Commons when you introduce a private member bill, it will have to go through the debate in order to pass the okay. first reading. And what I observed was there was complete indifference on on uh, on all sides, and that was frustrating because this is not supposed to be a partisan 
issue that we have to face. No, it's I, not. I, it's common sense. Yeah, exactly. It's I, in the defense I, of I'm our democracy. It's the defense of our democracy. Caucus, but I, I don't want this to be supported just by the conservatives. And unfortunately, at the time in 2021, um, we are the only people who speak up and supported this. Okay, Kenny, what, uh, what exactly did Beijing do? What did they do to interfere mm-hmm. with your re-election campaign in 2021? I know social media was engaged, was involved. We talked about that some in our first interview last year. But what were they doing to, to get to your, to your voters, to, to persuade the voters in your riding to not re-elect you? What was being done? Well, Roy, this is uh, much like what happened in eastern part of Ukraine, in the Donbass, in the Luhansk area, or to some extent in the Crimea area. The disinformation that is spread in those areas by Russia, uh, it, they, they're playing a long game. So pretty much after I started introducing the private member bill, uh, in Chinese media, you started hearing things that uh, that are completely um, mischaracterized. Like, for example, that I'm anti-Chinese. Notice that this is not a political party I'm against. Not, it's not a country that I'm against. I, I have been branded as a traitor for the Chinese people. I, being an ethnic Chinese myself, uh, being somebody who is deep respects and roots in the Chinese culture, has been branded as anti-Chinese, a hater. And so all these permeates it through the, the Chinese media. And during the election writ period, all of a sudden you start having articles that are published, um, provided supposed to be analysis, pointing out that uh, what Kenny Chu proposes will put uh, you know, all these Canadians of Chinese descent into jeopardy, they and their future generations. And, and so we must not let him re- get reelected. And that, by the way, Roy, unfortunately, as recent as two, three days ago, it was still in the Greater Vancouver Airwaves, complete disinformation portraying that I'm going to hurt and harm the diaspora Chinese community. My private member, Bill. If you run again. What is happening in in the capital right now, as we are talking about, it's been characterized, mischaracterized as... Uh, as an anti-Asian hate campaign. Yeah, I've heard that. Kenny, are you going to run again? Because you, you said that the uh, until a couple of days ago, the uh, the case against you continued to be made by Beijing. Will you run again? To be honest with you, Roy, I I I don't know. Like I said, I and I meant it when I say it. It is more important for the national discussion to bear some fruits right now. We, we, need, to, we need to deal with these predatorial um, forces that are wedging our multicultural community and taking hostages of our as diaspora communities. I, and I'm not pointing the finger just at the Chinese Communist Party controlled China. But, but also Russia and also Iran, as CSIS has pointed out multiple years and multiple reports. And, and so we, I would like to see the prices that's been paid by, you know, the brave and, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, and compassionate uh, bureaucrats such as those in CSIS being the, the whistleblower and the price that's paid by 
journalists, investigative journalists like Mr. Sam Cooper, Robert Fife, and, and you know Steve Chase. All these, I want them these pay, these prices to be um, to bear some fruits, to, yeah. to result in some legislative changes that would actually at least send out the the warning. See, the, one of the reasons we are paying attention. One of the reasons I ask if you're running again is that it would be very interesting to observe what happens as far as messaging about you appears. What would appear in social media? We could watch this develop if, in fact, Beijing would uh, have at you again. Mm -hmm. Now, um, CSIS did visit you in 2021, just days before the vote. Were you under personal threat at the time? No, Roy. Uh, CSIS actually um, visited me when I was sit as a sitting MP. Uh, they, they came to my office. Um, they took the initiative in approaching me and talked to me without letting me know why or what they're going to be following up with. During the election, when we have um, received reports from our volunteers and our, our campaign organization that something something fishy is happening, we collected all the information and we call uh, CSIS and they they met up with me in person during the election time. Um, so, yeah, they we have met a couple of times. Can you imagine why Mr. Trudeau is so adamantly opposed to a public inquiry? I mean, he says enough investigation is going on that the appropriate people, the appropriate organizations are looking into the claims of Chinese interference in our elections in 2019 and 2021. But can you imagine why Mr. Trudeau is being so determined that there will be no public inquiry? Roy, I'm afraid only he would be able to answer that question. We can only speculate. Uh, from my subjective personal observation, Mr. Trudeau uh, responded uh, with Russian threat in 2018-19 with uh, some changes to our election rules. Um, but these changes are mostly uh, just establishing uh, committees and panels um, and now we know that from the CEIPP uh, report um, that, um, you know, these thresholds are way too high and they only pay attention to during the writ period. And as I mentioned to you, Roy, um, this information and all these work, uh, they actually are happening as we speak. They continue to poison the well. They understand who is, uh, who, who is posing the, 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 big, the biggest threat to them influencing uh, Canada. And so by the time if I decided to run again, I don't know if the, the well is you know, poison enough to, uh, to, to allow people to drink anymore. So it's important that we do something today. Uh, there has been speculation that uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, the liberal leader, uh, it's doing this because of his uh, personal ideological bias, and, or maybe it's because it's benefiting. They're the beneficiary of these uh, interference. I would prefer not to think of that um, because I, I would like my my uh, my prime minister to actually think of the the need for the nations first and make it a you know nonpartisan issue, much like the in Australia, the the Labors and the Liberals, the left and the right wing, they are in unison. They they understand what yes, kind they of are. threat they are facing. Why yeah. can't that happen in Canada? If I may just have maybe 15 seconds yeah. um, to, to say that it, it, this is no way of, uh, uh, you know, a, a topic that, that politicians should be hired behind, racism and all that. Trivializing 
anti-Asian racism actually harms our, our community even more. Uh, the, the Asian communities, they are the victims. In this case, they're being manipulated. They need government protection rather than uh, you know, using them as a shield. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Do more. Look, I, I said yes to the artillery, but, you know, make sure it's at least 18 to 30 uh, guns and all the ammunition to go with them, including precision rounds. And if we don't have them, buy them. But do anything to give Ukrainian defense forces a chance to defend themselves against a brutal onslaught, which is going to continue until it succeeds. The uh, former chief of Canada's defense staff, uh, General Rick Hillier, on this program a couple of months ago, talking about this country and the rest of the world, the Western world providing support to Ukraine. A couple of days ago, we actually had the current chief of the defense staff, General Eyre, visiting Kiev. I think that's significant. But I, uh, I tweeted out earlier at the Roy Green Show, I'm absolutely horrified by four photographs that have appeared on Twitter. And uh, the person twe- uh, tweeting, posting the tweets, the photographs, is Christopher Miller. It's at Christopher J.M. And uh, he writes... Marlinka was once a quiet bedroom community of 10,000 residents and tree-lined streets just west of Donetsk. We'll now have to refer to it in the past tense because the Russian army has wiped it off the face of the earth. These images show an apocalyptic scene incompatible with life. And there are four photographs there, and I warn you, if you look at them, they will affect you. And you think about the fact that people lived there it is absolutely horrendous. It is gruesome. And that's what Russia is doing. So uh, let's talk about uh, what's going on in, uh, in Ukraine. And uh, there's talk, and uh, there have been news stories, I'm sure you're aware, that fierce fighting is continuing between Russian and Ukrainian troops in another virtually destroyed city named Bakhmut. And uh, Alexander Sherba is back with us, former Ukrainian ambassador to Austria, author of Ukraine versus Darkness, Undiplomatic Thoughts. Alexander, thank you uh, for joining us. Those photographs are just gruesome. It's horrific to think that this was committed, these acts were committed against the civilian population. And I imagine that uh, those scenes that are in those photographs are just repeating themselves over and over in your country. Yes, unfortunately, um, for Russia, liberating... Uh, some town or village and obliterating is it's is just the same thing, and uh, you saw on on these pictures obliterating literally, it's just it's just a black uh, um, desert. Uh, yes. What they're doing to these uh, towns of Donbas that they are supposedly uh, liberating or saving from Ukraine. I mean the level of you know hypocrisy evil evil kind of hypocrisy coming from russia is just just uh, unbelievable so 
Yeah, I was shocked by these pictures too. Thank you for mentioning them. Yeah, they they look like uh, an opening scene from a terrifying science fiction movie, except they're very real. Mm-hmm. And there, uh, say, uh, well, uh, uh, hadn't you uh, resisted? Uh, it still would be a flourishing town, but uh, just it's it's again it's a part of this, you know. Uh, uh, hypocrisy, because imagine how how uh, much less casualties and destruction would have been if the world given up gave up to Hitler or to all other you know uh, evil invaders uh, in history. We cannot we cannot uh, you know just put up with you know giving up our freedom and our lives and our language, our culture, everything. Yeah. We have to defend our land. So it's all on the invaders. You know, it took me about 30 seconds, no more than that, to find an example of very similar destruction in Syria that Putin and his army were responsible for maybe 10 or 12 years ago. It's, it's right there. He, it's, it's, it's his playbook. He also did it in Chechnya. But what, 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 what we're seeing in, in Ukraine is absolutely devastating. Can you give us an idea of what's happening in Bakhmut? Most people have heard the name. Maybe we've seen some video. We, we know of the, the constant fighting that's going on, and the Ukrainian troops are facing an onslaught from the Russians, um, waiting for the, we- the heavy weapons from the West. But can you give us a bit of a perspective on, on Bakhmut and how important that particular fight is? Uh let me first say a couple of words about uh, Syria and Chechnya. I, it just breaks my heart every time I think about uh, those poor people because we uh, have the West backing us, backing us up. We have the support. We have weapons to defend ourselves. Those poor people in Chechnya and in Syria, they had nothing actually, and 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 uh, I, I just cannot begin to comprehend the horror of uh, what they were exposed uh, to. About Bakhmut, uh, you know, we have been uh, saying for a while, and Russians were actually saying the same, that uh, the big uh, Russian offensive is coming uh, at some point uh, in February or in January, February. And uh, uh, after that, depending how things go, Ukraine will start the counteroffensive. And it turns out that this big offensive, it looks like that at least right now, uh, came down to this one town uh, of uh, 90,000 uh, inhabitants, uh, 60 kilometers from the line where Russia stood on February 24th last year. And they are basically using all the uh, uh, manpower, all the you know, uh, tanks, whatever, um, to take this town. It's horror there. And yes, they are slowly moving ahead since uh, last May. Uh, They are inching forward. Um, And uh, every morning, every Ukrainian family, every Ukrainian uh, begins with, you know, looking up Bakhmut, what is happening there? Have we given up that town or not? Um, it's it's very, very difficult. The fighting is fierce there. Uh, we hear that our Western partners are asking us, why don't you give up this town? Um, and, uh, well, the answer is it's 
it's a part of Ukrainian land. When the time comes that we cannot defend it, we will uh, give it up and uh, withdraw to, uh, to, to, to to different positions. But, oh my God, it's, it's going on since May. And uh, <laughs> Russia is using all uh, what it has to, you know, to, to, to occupy this town. And we are still, you know, um, hanging on that. Yeah. Uh, some of the fighting that I've seen, I've just seen some videos. It's it is extremely fierce, and um, which leads me to wonder how much are you receiving in the way of I don't know how much you can tell us about this, but how much are you receiving in the way of heavy weapons from the West, which you've been promised, including the tanks. You've got four more coming from this country, and uh, tanks from the U.S. and tanks from Germany, tanks from uh, Poland. Um, the heavy weapons are they starting to arrive in the numbers that you need them? Well, uh, tanks, these promised tanks, haven't been sighted on the front line yet, at least uh, not to my knowledge. But uh, uh, since yesterday there is this video that goes viral. It's from somewhere in Poland where um, it, it's taken from a, from a, a drone and it's showing uh, all the amount of, you know, heavy, uh, you know, um, machinery uh, military machinery that we uh, received, at least in Poland right now, and it's intended for Ukraine. And it's impressive. It's a lot. So we are, uh, right now, what counts is uh, uh, really, uh, we have what it takes uh, to defend ourselves. But once this heavy machinery arrives in Ukraine, and it must be really, really soon, uh, we will be ready for counteroffensive, and that will be the decisive mo- moment of this war. You you strongly believe that the Ukrainian military will defeat the Russians, don't you? Absolutely. Uh, uh, we we have seen uh, throughout this war, we have seen that uh, Ukrainian military has performed better than expected, and Russian military worse than expected. And the dynamic of this war goes from zero percent believing uh, in Ukraine's chances uh, and 100 percent believing in Russia's chances uh, in absolutely, you know, opposed directions. And right now, uh, I think our chances are way higher. And first of all, of course, I see the motivation of our soldiers, of our troops, and I see the motivation of uh, Russians. Of course, they are earning money in this war. Of course, some of them have been brainwashed into believing that we are the Nazis here. Uh, but still, the motivation uh, on our side is immensely, immensely uh, bigger. Um, Alexander, the, what's the significance of um, the visit to Kiev by our chief of defense staff, General Wayne Eyre? Well, it's uh, immensely important in the way uh, that uh, uh, Canada is showing support. Kenya, uh, Canada is... Uh, uh, staying engaged in Ukraine, we know, and we are immensely grateful for, uh, you know, uh, 3,000 tons of uh, military help already provided, uh, 200 armored uh, military vehicles already provided. But, you know, it's it's a war. Uh, uh, what uh, happened uh, yesterday, happened yesterday, the most important thing is uh, what's coming next. And uh, we know that uh, um, even uh, Leopard 2 tanks have been mentioned uh, as uh, a possibility 
that um, they could be provided by Canada. Um, so uh, it's very important because this counter-offensive is coming. So uh, uh, definitely I don't know the details and I shouldn't be knowing the details of this military uh, negotiations, but it's a very good thing that they're happening. Yeah. So there's a, there's another story I want to ask you about, and it's been floating around. It's been on page one, page two, page three, if we refer to the old newspaper days, as far as getting attention is concerned. But the story continues to insist there are competing interests at the top of the Ukraine military. Not everybody's on the same page. Is that true? Uh, it's in the, in the Canadian press. Well, it's in it's in various news services. Yeah. Well, uh, actually, we have one uh, uh, military leader in whom Ukrainian people have absolute confidence. It's General Zaluzhny, our commander in chief, uh, supreme commander in chief, and so he has full support from uh, President Zelensky. So uh, there are rumors about you know. Uh, uh, some other general who is also very, very popular with troops and with the population that he uh, might uh, make a competition for uh, General Zaluzhny. But again, it's just it's mostly on Russian, uh, you know, telegram channels. I don't know whether they uh, whether this is what you mean, because in Ukraine, it's not an issue these days. Absolutely not. Yeah, it could be Russian disinformation. Yeah. Now we also Absolutely. have the just uh, we uh, the, the sense here on the ground is that uh, the military unit military uh, leadership is absolutely united. That the rumors about you know somebody in the political leadership being envious of General Zaluzhny popularity they are just that rumors. Um, so uh, quite frankly, if I knew something, I would have told you. Believe me, I'm not you know. Uh, hide, trying to hide anything from you. Uh, it's not a topic here in Ukraine. All right. Uh, the, the Russian deputy foreign minister a couple of days ago warned of, quote, catastrophic consequences, end quote, if the West arms and supports Ukraine any further. Not, not surprising to hear that. But how do you interpret that warning? Is that just a lot of noise or is he starting to edge back to the discussion about potential use of nuclear weapons? Oh, God, it's just it's just noise. Just they noise. have been saying this for so long. And they, it's just, uh, you know, first, uh, if you do that, we will use, uh, it will have, have catastrophic uh, consequences than that, than that. Uh, in reality is that uh, Russia is warning the West against escalation while uh, it's escalating every day, 24/7 here on the ground. So they are just uh, afraid uh, of, uh, because they see that they are losing the war. They, I, I, I'm, I'm rather confident that at this stage they won't do the stupid thing of, you know, using nuclear weapons uh, uh, against Ukraine and by far, of course, not against the West. That's just empty talk because that would be the end of Russia's. Uh, you know, support in the in countries like China and India, uh, the global South won't, you know, see Russia with the same eyes. It's just the um, attempt to intimidate you guys in the West. Yeah, I don't think it's going to work. 
I'm quite sure it's not going to work. Although there are some people in Western countries who are saying there has to be an accounting for the money that is spent in Ukraine. But that you hear that, you know, you knew that was going to happen. Uh, once those, um, we have about a minute left here, Alexander. Once the um, the heavy weapons arrive in large numbers and you can deploy them against uh, the Russians, that's going to be quite the sight when the uh, Ukrainian uh, military starts to move back toward the Russians and takes the offensive away from them. It'll be very interesting to see. And it'll be gratifying to see after, again, looking at those photographs of that community. It's just horrifying. It will be a decisive moment, and we are absolutely, you know, looking forward to seeing our army uh, going on the offensive. There's a a story that is getting a, a lot of attention. And it's from Milton, Ontario. A 22-year-old man, his name is Ali Mian, allegedly shot and killed an armed intruder during a home invasion two weeks ago. And uh, Mr. Mian has been granted bail. And there's lots of talk in this country, and there always is when there's a situation or a case like this. And we cannot presume or talk about guilt or innocence when the charges are laid, and we won't. But there's always a lot of talk about what the limit should be when it comes to self-defense, if you find yourself under... uh, under attack, whether you're in your home or elsewhere, what level of response are you entitled to by law to uh, to, to deliver? Ed Berlew is a criminal lawyer in Toronto. He specializes in firearms-related cases. He's defended more than 700 cases involving licensed firearms owners and began this work in 1999. I've known Mr. Berlew for many time, many years. Ed, so we, we can't get into the specifics of the, of the case, guilt, innocence, and so on, but the Milton case, the, unfolding the way it is, um, can you explain to us what's going on? Well, <clears throat> I don't know what's going on because to me, uh, when I look at section 34 of the criminal code, if you are in your home and you are facing deadly force, you can respond with deadly force. There is nothing in Canadian law that says we have to first try to retreat. That went out under the Harper government. He got rid of that. Now, we don't have it as strong as the council law, whereby, you know, somebody breaks in, we can just shoot them. That that apparently is what is done in some states in the United States, which is a very unusual part of the council law, not shared by other states. But in Canada, we don't have to retreat. And if they came in, and I know at least one who was captured by the police, he had... Uh, an unauthorized firearm. So if somebody comes into your house and they have a firearm and they're going to threaten you with it, well, the law seems to say in the statute itself, in the criminal code itself, that you can can respond with deadly force. So so you, um, you represented Ian Thompson in Ontario who was under assault by a number of individuals who were firebombing his home and shouting death threats. Mr. Thompson was a licensed gun owner. He was a firearms instructor. And if I remember correctly, and I interviewed him on this program, he shot over the heads of the intruders, and he was charged by police. And that case wound its way through the courts for quite a few years. So Mr. Thompson found himself in some significant difficulty. And, and Ed, you would know uh, it, it cost him a great deal personally and and, uh, and financially, didn't it? Well, yes, it did because he lost the house. 
um, the way I defended him was I said, you don't have to pay me a dollar. And the community supported him. And whatever the community gave me, that's what I got paid. But uh, I, I just couldn't let him face these charges. Yeah. And actually, early on, I got the Crown to drop. I negotiated a drop of the uh, attempt murder charge, and it just went on an unsafe storage charge. I remember yeah, that. Because they, because they couldn't, the Crown was trying to say, oh, well, you must have had the gun out because you got it so quick. Well, you know, people don't understand that because you're familiar with your own safe and where your guns are, that you can get into them and, and get them out in a minute or two. And uh, during that time, I mean, for Mr. Thompson, the, the videos show that, that the public can see that he had at least four, uh, five molotail cocktails hit his house and one burned his dog up. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, that was a reasonable response. We don't know the timeline here, but what we do know is that if this were a police situation, that the police would not have been charged because the police are trained. They're trained and that gives them the benefit. And they're trained with what's called the wheel of force. So it starts with verbal command. Then it goes to um, uh, fisticuffs. Then it goes to um, sticks. And then it goes, you know, like a baton. Then it goes to uh, other restraints. Then it goes to uh, the, the uh, stun gun. Then it goes to the real gun. Yeah. So, and uh, but we don't have all those tools available to us when we're doing this. But also, if, if they come in with a with a gun, I mean, you can get your gun and and respond. So, so what happened then? And and again, we have to be careful because the case is before the courts. But but what happened then with uh, Mr. Meehan being granted bail at one hundred and thirty thousand dollars? How does this now factor into what's going on? Well. You know, he can't go back to his house. He's got to live with his grandmother. I hope grandmother knows how to defend him because there's still three perps out there, you know, with their one friend in custody and one friend dead or, co, you know, co-perp out there. They may want to wreak some revenge on him, on Mr. Me and himself. I don't know. But that's a substantial amount of bail. That's a high amount of bail. I was thinking that too, yeah. And uh, that would that would sort of discourage a lot of people from being able to even get out. So look, you've handled over 700 cases, firearms cases. Yeah. And, and what, what is the, um, what's the fundamental rule again about what you're permitted to do or not do when it comes to self-defense, defending yourself, defending your family, defending your home from assault? What's the rule, what's the fundamental law in this country? Well, the fundamental law is, is found in Section 34 of the Criminal Code, and there it goes through eight steps of, of, you know, what is reasonable in the circumstances with respect to the threat that you're facing. Did you face it properly? Did you use too much force or uh, a proper amount of force? And, uh, you know, if you're, looking at, if you're looking down the barrel of some perpetrator's gun who's broken into your house, well, they're not there for tea and cookies. And if you're facing the gun, believe me, you can, you can retaliate with a gun. And you don't have to wait for them to shoot you dead first. But we don't have the Castle Doctrine, right? We, we don't have the Castle Doctrine in this country. No, no, but you got to, we don't. But the, the, the fact of the matter is that a Castle Doctrine is actually wrongly interpreted. 
a castle doctrine, most castle doctrines require that you first try to retreat, believe it or not. Then, if you can't retreat, then you can retaliate. And you can retaliate with even deadly force, even if you're not facing deadly force. Okay. But in Canada, you know, if we're facing deadly force, we can, re- we can retaliate with deadly force. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.